0: Okay, what we have before us tonight is a, uh, a PowerPoint type of presentation to simplistically talk about prophecy as a whole in the Bible to give you an understanding. Uh, we're, we're being a little naive to think that one night we'll give you a full picture of it, but I want to be simple and clear enough where you get a real good grasp of prophecy. Prophecy is basically God... Telling us what's going to happen through his prophets. Now there are no more prophets like Daniel that are alive today. No one knows when the Lord's going to return, but we're given in Scripture very specific things that we can watch for and correctly interpreted, correctly seen within Scripture. Uh, really lays out a very clear program for the end times of the return of Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm not sure. Let me. I'm going to bounce around a little bit on this PowerPoint. Um, we are going to, let's, uh, let's give an overview out of Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And if you want to turn there, you can, chapter 9 of Daniel. There are six basic things um, that, that the Lord, through Gabriel, predicts and prophesies. This is specifically about the Jewish nation. Because when you see, finish the transgression. We think as Gentiles, oh, that's the forgiveness of our sins, God Christ dealing with that on the cross. That's not what it's talking about in this verse. Everything in this verse, 24, specifically deals with the nation of Israel because the prophecy is there. Remember I talked about this morning keeping everything in context? The context of this prophecy is strictly Jewish, not Gentile. Um, I'll give you just a just a parathetical thought. Uh, there's a verse out of Jeremiah where it is promised that the Lord will take the heart of stone out of men, or this really to Israel, and place it in a heart of flesh. Remember that verse that says that? So the church has said, oh, that's, that's the work of the gospel. That's not what that verse is saying at all. The problem is, when we get saved, he really does take the heart of stone out and put in a heart of flesh. He really does do that. But the verse in Jeremiah is talking about the end days when the return of the Lord comes and all of Israel, according to Romans, shall be saved. See? Uh, So the context is nothing to do with the gospel or the work of the gospel. The the, The context of Jeremiah is the end times and God saving Israel as a whole. Where he takes their heart of stone out. I'll tell you another example, and just, I'm gonna leave this for you to look up. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We have quoted that almost all our life. This is the day the Lord, things get hard, people say, Oh, this is the day. Read the context of that verse in Psalms. That day is not a happy day in Psalms, it's a bad day. Okay, I'll let, you, I'll let you look that up yourself. You can look that up and look at the context before and after. It's not talking about being happy and giddy, man. It's, 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 it's something completely different. But see how we can just read a verse and read into it. All right, so uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. This gives you an overview of the prophecy, at least how it deals with the nation of Israel in this 70 years. Now, we're going to lots of slides, so just kind of hang in there. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. That is absolutely strictly Jewish talk. Your people, your city, has nothing to do with the church. It can't I'll tell you why, because part of the prophecy is rebuild in Jerusalem, rebuild in the holy city. If this is the heavenly city, like the amillennialists say, if this is the heavenly city. When was that broken down and in need of repair? Carefully read the Bible and you'll find a correct interpretation is the actual city of Jerusalem itself and the Jewish people. Okay? So look at verse 24 about your people and your holy city. Six things, six things to finish the transgression. Now the word transgression there is the rebellion of man. It's more than just sin. It's the attitude of open resistance and rebellion. Well, if you look at the history of the nation of Israel, she has been a rebellious people to the Lord. Now, I know she's responded from time to time, but the Lord had a fit with, with her in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just stubborn, hard-headed. Paul dealt with it himself when he preached to the Jews. You always resist, Stephen said, uh, in the book of Acts. You always resist. And so, so this is to finish that spirit and attitude. Now, if you look out at Israel today, she still has that resistance against God. So this thing's not finished yet. It can't be finished back in Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Christ back then. It can't. Because the rebellion of the Jewish people continue on even today. So this is a finishing the transgression, to put an end to sin. Sin of the Jewish people. This is not the forgiveness of their sins. This is to put the end of all the sin of all the centuries that Israel has been committing. Notice, and to atone for iniquity. Now now the Jews get saved the same way we did it's in the cross of Jesus Christ it's in the blood of Christ but this is specifically for the end of the 70 years the end of the 490 when the Lord Jesus returns and they see the Messiah whom they have pierced and they repent and the end of their sin comes the atonement for their iniquity is now brought to bear upon them based on the blood of Christ this is his return so these are three negative things Notice, to bring in everlasting righteousness. To bring it in. This is the establishment of the millennial kingdom. This is the rebuilding, ultimately, of the holy city in Jerusalem in terms of the, the, the headquarters for Jesus Christ to take over in this world and to rule and reign, for a th- to bring in that everlasting righteousness. Notice, to seal both the vision and the prophet. To seal all that the prophets have preached. Every promise made to Israel will be fulfilled. This is the problem with the amillennialist stance. This is the problem with the liberal's stance. The liberal says that all this stuff was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. Back in the old ancient Syrian thing, it's all done. It's all sealed up. Well, it can't be all sealed up because there's prophecies in Daniel, there's prophecies in Jeremiah, Isaiah. there's a temple in Ezekiel that's described that's never been built. the millennial kingdom, the millennial temple itself. And so in this, this has not happened yet, but it says there to seal it up, to finish it off, that God, when He makes a promise, he keeps that promise. He doesn't push it aside and spiritualize the church and say, well, I guess it didn't work out with Israel. And that's the way God does with all sin. God's original design in Adam was for fellowship and for love and for the union and connection between his creature. Sin is a road bump, a roadblock. It is simply something, a hump to go over that God will conquer. He will get his man. He will get his creation. He will get his children. He never stops until he gets what he desires, because he's God. He never gives plan B. It's always exactly what he said, so to seal up the prophecy. And lastly, to anoint a most holy place, or a most holy. Probably referencing the nation of Israel, probably referencing the millennial kingdom, probably referencing, possibly referencing uh, the Messiah himself. Okay. So there you go. Those are the six overview of this in a very Jewish context. Now we're going to fly a little faster. This is the Gentile Nation prophecies out of Daniel. This is God's dealing with these four major kingdoms. Now, why is there only four kingdoms when we had uh, kingdoms over in China, we had king we had a lot of kingdoms and these are the four that surrounded Israel and affected God's people. All right? So you have Babylon from 606 to 539. That's, of course, the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, This is also uh, out of Daniel's uh, vision of the four beasts coming out, the lion-type thing coming out of the waters. You have Medo-Persia, 539 to 331. That's the silver chest and the arms. That's uh, Cyrus the Great, the great Medo-Persian. Cyrus the Great took over. Okay? Okay. So in 331, Alexander the, Alex the Great comes in. Um, he is the brass stomach and thighs of Daniel from 331 to 323. Not a long period of time, but he conquered an awful lot of land during then. Now within that, within that Greece, you have the splitting of the four, four generals, the two north and south of Israel. You have Antiochus Epiphany coming in. But basically, that's the Greek Empire. Rome came in at 332, 322 BC, and went to AD 476. She actually went a little further, but during that time, 476 was the merger of Christianity and the, the Roman government, and became the Roman uh, the Roman Catholic Empire, if you will. And basically, popes began to run the entire empire. So really, the the, the The dissolving of a purely Roman government was 476 uh, A.D. or A.D. 476 properly said. So the prophetic numbers, I want to reference those two. One being unity. These are prophetic numbers that we find. One being unity. Uh, Why is that a prophetic number? Because God has a unit of mission. He has one unit. In the end, He will call all things back to Himself. In, in, In the end, all will bow their knees. In the end, an eternal kingdom will be set up where all things are reconciled. He doesn't have five or six plans for five or six groups of people, Jew and Gentile. All humanity that come to him will be one in that final kingdom, one. God is a unity. The Lord our God is one. Seven is divine fulfillment. It is divine fulfillment. It is is God's number for rest, the Sabbath rest. Okay, Six days he created, and the seventh day he rested. And so you have this number seven, all through the prophecies, uh, and we talked about the 77s here, and God's fulfillment. And then ten, you have divine authority, either in his own way of governing the world or man's responsibility to govern. In the end, you'll have ten toes on the image. So it's a picture of human government and their attempt to run things, but ultimately God's. Okay? Any questions about any of those slides so far? Okay. We'll open it up for more questions at the end. This is a basic slide on Jewish history. And the reason this is important is because God works through his people. After the gospel came to be and Christ died... When Paul went out to preach, he said it over and over again, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. As the Jewish nation goes, so goes prophecy. You've got to understand Jewish history, Jewish festivals, Jewish feasts, and I'm going to give you an example of one tonight. That's this, if you know the festivals, do you know Jesus died on a Jewish festival? It was Passover. Amen. It was Passover. The day of Pentecost was the festival of Pentecost. Do you understand? God does everything according to a Jewish timetable. Therefore, to understand the Jewish people and their festivals and their timetables and where they came from and why God, why God puts so much emphasis on them is to understand God's working today in this world. So, call of Abraham came about 2100 B.C., about 2100. These are approximate dates, by the way. Some of these are hard to taggle down, and, and you would read books, and it's this and that, so don't, don't, don't try to nail me on a specific date in these. The uh, first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about creation. Now, I want you to see the emphasis of God here. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about creation, the flood, and all that it spanned about 2000 years in 11 chapters so the call of abraham comes and for the next 39 chapters 11 39 spanning 350 years is about abraham and his and his call do you see the bulk do you see the wide lens narrowing in on abraham so you got 2000 years he talked about 11 chapters then you got 39 chapters in the call of Abraham and the Jewish people. See the bulk of the attention of God back then. All right, so you had Joseph come along about 1878 BC, and he goes down to Egypt, spends 400 plus years down there in slavery. Uh, well, Joseph doesn't, he starts out well, it doesn't end well, and you know the story. They, another pharaoh came on the thing, they went into slavery, okay? Moses comes down in 1465 BC and pulls him up out of Egypt, the great deliverer, um, he marches them to Canaan land. Uh, they didn't have a good day, and they rejected the whole deal and went out for 40 years. Be careful of the decisions you make in a day, because it could affect the next 40 years. And so out in the desert they go, out in the desert they go. For 40 years they're out there. And so uh, and, and then 40 years later, Joshua comes in about 1422 B.C., enters the promised land, And they're in the promised land. A lot of history happens. You read the first, second kings, the chronicles. You find out a lot about the history of what went on and and the judges and all that kind of stuff. Just great stuff. And then about uh, 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes down into the southern kingdom. by this time, the northern kingdom is gone. Israel is gone. Assyria took them out years before. And then you have the tiny little Judea down there. You had a couple tribes. And Nebuchadnezzar comes down and takes them out, strips them. And that's how Daniel gets up into Babylon. This is a judgment of God because Israel refused to give the land a Sabbath rest for 490 years. So God got every seven years they were supposed to let the land rest. The Israel didn't do it, so God said, Judged them and took them up and let that land rest for 70 years. Therein you have the context. Of the 7 times 70 prophecy. Because Daniel sees, Daniel sees this. He sees it. He sees the Gentile nations. And then he gets to reading, he gets to reading that the 70 years is almost up that Jeremiah prophesied would be. I mean, he can do his math and he's close to it and he's thinking, well, what's going on with the Jew? Is there a future for the Jews? This is what he's wanting to know. He starts confessing the sins of the people of Israel. Because there's a prophecy in Jeremiah that says that the people will seek my face. So he says, well, I don't know if anybody else is doing it, but I'm going to seek your face. And so he starts praying. Okay? This is the context of the prophecy. God's saying, yes, I do have a future for your people. And therein is the thing. All right, take a look above me. There is 70 times 70 prophecy. This is 430 years. It's broken, up and by, it's broken up by the scripture. In fact, let's look at it in Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter... Before we get into this, let me tell you one specific thing I just recently learned um, from an author. Um, This this is in reference to Jewish festivals and Jewish feasts. Now listen carefully how specific God is about his days and about how he pulls things off. This writer suggests from Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 2 that Israel left Sinai and it was an 11 day, it gives the day and the time of the month, it's an 11 day journey to Canaan land. Now this is right after they got the law, they just got out of Egypt, this is the first time they're going to the the land. It's an 11-day trip. It will put them on the very first day in the month of Nisan. First day. Three days after that is the festival instituted of Pentecost. Okay, So instituted of Pentecost, that was the festival in three days. Now, the author gives good evidence that God had them wait three days a number of times. Uh, When probably beginning when Pharaoh sent them out for a 3-day journey. They were to wait at Sinai 3 days before they left. 40 years later when Joshua brings them in, they come to the River Jordan. He has them wait 3 days. So this is a repetitive action of God. Isn't stated in in, in the first thing, but it's implied. So they get to the, they get to the Canaan land. They get to the River Jordan before they send the spies over on the first day of the month. Okay, Probably that three days possibly was for the spies to go in. But if they waited three days, it was the day of Pentecost that they were to cross over the River Jordan. Watch the spiritual significance of this. Pentecost is our celebration of the Holy Spirit coming down. If Canaan land, promised land, is a picture of the victorious life, Christian living, then it's the Spirit of God that will take us into the land. The the festival of Pentecost was actually the wheat wave offering. What the Jews did in the wheat harvest on the day of Pentecost was to grab bundles of wheat and wave them before the Lord. This was to signify God is the author of fruit and growth, and we wouldn't have the wheat if God didn't give us this growth. So he's waving this before the Lord, right? Well, the very first Pentecost, when they got to the land of Israel, what wheat did they have to wave? They hadn't been in the land yet. They had no wheat to wave. So this crossing over Jordan, which is a picture of entering into the Christian life, begins with empty hands, with the fact that we bring nothing from Sinai, nothing from the law, nothing before going in, that we cannot, we cannot conquer in the land. It's a recognition that God must bring the fruit and there's nothing in our hand. So see how, see how these festivals and feasts play in tremendously in a picture of the Christian life. Okay. Okay. So let's go on. Take a look at uh, Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And let's read through this prophecy and then we'll we'll look at the chart that's above me. 70 weeks are decreed about your people, your holy city, we went through it to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Notice it's three and three. Three negative, three positive. To seal both the vision and the prophet. All the things the prophet said and all the visions given to the prophets will come to pass. And to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem. Now, there are three dates given um, for the Jews to go back to the land. Three, th- actually, four different degree, decrees to go back. The fourth decree happened in 444 or 445 B.C., around that time. That was the decree by Artaxerxes to rebuild the city and the temple, to do the whole deal. There was decrees earlier to go back and work on the wall and do those things, but this was involving the temple itself and the whole city. Okay? So back to Daniel uh, chapter 9. Skimming down to, uh, to a... Uh, uh, okay. You notice I closed my Bible, and of course, there it is. Okay, Daniel chapter 9. Moving on. It says, No, therefore, understand that from the going forth of the word in 444-445 B.C. to restore and build Jerusalem... To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks, you have a split there between the seven and the, 70, seven and the sixty-two, then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time, okay? So look at the chart behind me. Seven weeks is forty-nine years, if it began on March 14th, 445 BC, it runs to 396 BC. This is the rebuilding of the temple, Jerusalem, the wall, the entire deal, where they actually were sacrificing within the temple again. At that point, from 396 BC to AD 32, is 430 years or 62 more weeks. Now, Sir Robert Anderson is quite an author and uh, a prophecy teacher who lived a a while back. He was uh, employed at Scotland Yard as a detective before he was saved. He's done a good work. Uh, and basically, his work involves a number of things, but one of them is this specific prophecy. And he uses a Jewish year of 360 days versus our 365. And he counts from March 14th, 445 BC, if I have those dates correct, the specific days. That it took, and I think it was almost 200,000 days, it was below that 173, 800 or something like that, and brings the end of that 62 week second period to the very day that Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem offering himself to the Jewish authorities. And here you have the end of the 62 weeks. Notice, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one We believe this is Jesus Christ. An anointed one shall be cut off. Now the next phrase is very difficult in the Hebrew to translate. Uh, The ESV chooses to translate, and shall have nothing. Again, this is very difficult. Uh, Who has a King James out there? I'm down in verse uh, 26. John, read that nice and loud in the King James. Kathy, do you have it? It says, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. There you go. The reason you have two different translations is because the phrase in the Hebrew is extremely difficult to translate into the thing. I almost kind of prefer the King James at that point and not for himself. His death was not for himself, it was for us and for the Jewish people, okay? So let's go on and continue in verse 26. And the people of the prince, now this, shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, in our understanding of these verses, this could only be the Roman emperor Titus in 70 A.D., When he marched into Jerusalem and basically leveled, in a matter of years, level the city, not one rock was left upon another. It's an interesting story, Uh, I won't go into depth with it, but basically the soldiers, as they were pillaging the city, and by the way, the Jews had held up for years. They had, had food stores in there, and every time they broke through a wall, the Jews had built another wall. Now, you can imagine as a soldier, when you've been fighting and besieging a city for a number of years, and you'd lost men, and this was a long and audulous battle. You can imagine when you finally got in there that you were pretty ticked off. There was also rumors. That's how God works. There was also rumors among God. Yes, God works with rumors. There was rumors among the soldiers that the Jews had hidden all their treasures, because even back then, Jews were uh, Rumored to be very rich and wealthy as they are today. And so all the temple gold and all the riches of Israel was stashed in the walls of the temple. Well, if you think there's gold inside that wall, you're going to bust that stone down and find out. So this is how the, I mean, they, not one, Jesus prophesied, not one rock would be left upon another. And that's what they did on level the city. So the prince of the people, we take it to mean. Now the amillennialists they believe that this was Antiochus Epiphanes, but um, no, notice uh, that cannot possibly fulfill it. For notice, destroy the city and the sanctuary. Antiochus made a mess of it, but he didn't destroy it. Notice, and the people, the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary its end shall come like a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, between that last phrase and desolations are decreed is the entire history of the last 2,000 years to the Jewish people. After Titus wiped the city out, and they lost their city, they lost their sanctuary, they lost their land pretty much. Um, desolations are decreed for 2,000 years. Spread throughout all the world. We know within the last century of Hitler's bringing six million of them to death in Nazi camps, desolations. These aren't judgments of God. This is work of the Satan, of Satan, but God's people, were cast upon the waters of the world. Notice, and he shall make, notice, and he shall make a strong covenant. Let, let's stop right there, because some people have trouble with the whole gap thing, and let me put your mind to ease. There's several instances in the Bible of gaps. One of them is I, in Isaiah, because at this point, what we believe is desolations are decreed, the clock stops for Israel, the age of grace in the church comes in and then he'll pick up is there gaps in scripture when Jesus preached in the Nazarene temple remember in the Nazarene synagogue he preached out of Isaiah and he he read a verse and stopped halfway through I think it's in Isaiah 61 I'm not going to reference us to it but basically the first part is about the coming Messiah halfway through the verse without any stopping of the verse at all all of a sudden it talks about the the Messiah coming in judgment. When Jesus preached in that Nazarene synagogue, he stopped halfway through the verse and put the scrolls down and said, Today in your eyes this has been fulfilled. Only the first half of the verse that referenced him coming as as a lamb, coming to, to heal the blind, to bind up those who are wounded, Okay? The second half of the verse without even stopping in the verse is about the judgment of God and about the lion of Judah taking over. See the gap within that verse right there? There's two other instances in in the Bible where there is a gap within a verse of a of a stopping point where God picks up the calendar later on, okay? So, take a look at uh, desolations are decreed right there. Stop. We go to this we go to the first part of the beginning of the 70th week. And he doesn't say who. We take it to be the Antichrist, of which Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes was the forerunner. And he shall make a strong covenant with many, again, the Jewish context, with many for one week, seven years. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice. And notice, for half and of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So halfway through the week, after three and a half years, he will step in and stop the sacrifices of Israel, stop the offerings of Israel within the temple. It will be instituted at the beginning of that seven years. But he'll put an end to it. He'll turn on the Jews. For on the wing of abomination shall one shall come one who makes desolate, the Antichrist, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator, until the Christ returns and judges the Antichrist and, of course, Satan. So back here, there you have it, the breakdown, 49 years to the rebuilding of Jerusalem, 62 years until the Messiah is cut off. And then the last week, we believe, is the last week of the tribulation. I don't know if I've got another slide. I think that's it.